0: We call it the garbage map of Estonia. We were mapping on Google Earth the illegal garbage sites.
1: From the Kitchen Sisters and NPR, the hidden world of girls.
0: I am Tina Urm from Estonia, communications manager of Let's Do It campaign. 50,000 people volunteering. All the nation together one day, cleaning all the country from the illegal garbage sites. A really crazy idea, but spread from friend to friend there were kids, students, grandmothers, grandfathers. Situation is bad. Let's do something about it, you know. Let's do it in one day. I don't want to wait so long.
1: (laughs) The hidden world of girls. Stories of women who crossed a line, blazed a trail, changed the tide. An hour of stories and more. I'm your host, Tina Fey. Back in a moment. From the Kitchen Sisters and NPR, welcome to The Hidden World of Girls. I'm your host, Tina Fey.
2: The Hidden World of Girls. I'm Alice. Okay.
1: The Mother's Prayer for Its Daughter. First Lord, no tattoos. May neither the Chinese symbol for truth nor Winnie the Pooh holding the FSU logo stain her tender haunches. May she be beautiful but not damaged. Or it's the damage that draws the creepy soccer coach's eye, not the beauty. Guide her. Protect her. When crossing the street, stepping onto boats, swimming in the ocean, swimming in pools. Lead her away from acting, but not all the way to finance. Something where she can make her own hours, but still feel intellectually fulfilled. And get outside sometimes, and not have to wear high heels. What would that be, Lord? Architecture? Midwifery? Golf course design. May she play the drums to the fiery rhythm of her own heart, with the sinewy strength of her own arms, so she need not lie with drummers. Grant her a rough patch from 12 to 17. Let her draw horses and be interested in Barbies for much too long. Her childhood is short.
0: The tiger flower.
1: The hidden world of girls. An hour of stories and more inspired by the series heard on All Things Considered and Morning Edition. Stories of girls and the women they become. I'm your host,
0: Tina Fey. Girls and the women they become.
1: (laughs) Get really close to the microphone. And I'll say it really sneaky, like it's a secret.
0: The
3: hidden world
1: of girls. My daughter's hidden world, you already realize, like, you don't really know. They become people, and they have part of their day that is Secret their hidden world.
0: girls around the
1: world. She likes that uh, My Little Pony, bunch of ponies being like, let's be friends. And I saw one once, it was like, the little ponies went to put on a play, and they're like, let's use everyone's idea because everyone's idea is good. No, when you do play, every, everyone's idea is not good. But they are pretty, and they have rainbow colored hair. My pony, my In this hour, we journey into the world of girlhood dreams and fantasy. From the Kitchen Sisters comes this story, Horses, Unicorns, and Dolphins.
4: Dolphins and unicorns and horses. They're kind of like a girl's fantasies. Like every girl wants their own unicorn. Every girl goes to the stage where they want a horse. Horses and dolphins
5: and unicorns. These are all borderland creatures, gateway animals to other worlds. They help us imagine wonderful other ways of being in the world. They let us be cowgirls, and oceanographers, and mermaids, and
6: princesses.
4: We don't really like princesses that much. I'm seven, and my name is Allie Mackenzie. They're not as exciting as, like, horses, animals, and the show called Flipper.
2: I love dolphins. I swam with dolphins. It just captures your heart. When they take off and swim and just pushing you with their nose or they're pulling you with their fin, it's power.
7: It's like the mermaid fantasy that you can just live in the ocean and not have to have anything. It's all there. My name is Janet Mann. I'm a professor of psychology and biology at Georgetown University. I've been studying wild bottlenose dolphins for 23 years. I get a lot of letters from girls. Sometimes they say they want to be me. Just sort of what I went through when I first wrote to Jane Goodall. Often their mothers will write the letters for them. Hi Janet. My second-grade daughter Emily is crazy about dolphins. She has to do a small project in school. While her classmates are choosing the likes of Thomas Edison and George Washington, she wants to do Janet Mann, dolphin researcher. It's this notion of being able to just move like that through the world. That's what both dolphins and horses have in common. Sleek power and speed. My
4: name is Sally Rose Riker, and
8: I'm 11 years old. When I look at a horse, I see myself in their
4: eyes. It's just who I am. I want to be free, and I won't leave my worries away from me just getting on and riding and leaving all my bad
9: memories on the ground. To be in control or
5: out of control on a galloping horse is a wild feeling. You are one with it. You just feel the power underneath you, and that's part of the attraction. There's always been speculation about why girls love horses. Is it about power? Is it some Freudian phallic thing? Or, you know, what is it? My name is Peggy Orenstein, author of Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Dispatches from the New Girly Girl Culture. Horses and unicorns and dolphins are a girl expressing her own power through these very dynamic, strong creatures that they're identifying with.
2: I had a teacher who asked me what it was with girls and horses. His theory was that it was similar to, like, taming a bad boy and I really disagreed with that. Horses don't talk back. You know, they're not gonna yell at you if you didn't clean your room or give you the cold shoulder if you forgot to return a phone call.
10: Come on, buttercup! (laughs) A girl, ladies and gentlemen, a bit of a girl clutching the neck of a bandy-legged outsider streaked across the line to win the greatest race in Turfdom.
6: A girl wins the Grand
4: National! National Velvet, I love that book. I'm Danielle, I'm 11. My horse is named Grendel. I'm here every day. Every second I can be here to work with him.
5: The currying, the cleaning of the hooves, the mucking of the stalls, the brushing of the mane and tail. You have to have this sort of skill level, as well as the nurturing, to take care of your horse. What that seems to be turning into in this generation is online pets. There's this whole breed of online horses. You have your horse and it's in its little stall. You have to feed it, brush it, change its hay. And if you don't, your horse starts to die and its little life meter runs out.
7: My name is Leah Creatura. For me, a lot of the horse phase was that I wanted to be an Amazon princess because I wanted to be Wonder Woman. One of the parts of my Amazon princess training was learning how to ride bareback. I was going to a Y camp. I was very discouraged because they didn't really understand about the Amazon princess training. They would not let me learn how to shoot archery on the horse.
5: To have a place where what it means to be a girl is to be courageous and strong and the only one able to do this impossible task. It's the girl who can ride the horse. It's the girl who's Wonder Woman. It's the girl who tames the unicorn.
2: I love unicorns. They are like the whimsical fantasy dreamland of the horse.
11: I know that unless you believe in them, they won't show themselves to you. They're like a very pure spirit. One of the most iconic myths about unicorns has to do with the unicorn hunt. My name is Nina Shen Rostogi, and I wrote an article, Why Do Girls Love Unicorns? It's More Than Just the Horn. The only way that hunters can lure the unicorn is to bring out a pure young virgin, have her sit in the woods, and the unicorn would be attracted to her innate goodness, purity, her beauty, her youth for many young girls, there is a fantasy that someday you will be recognized as the secretly beautiful, magical thing that you are. The unicorn would be attracted to something ineffable about you, secret from the rest of the world. I think when you're small,
5: you're more open-minded to everything. That's maybe the most beautiful part of girlhood, is knowing that you can't actually be all of these things but not being entirely sure.
2: My pony was called Cherry Bounce and was a strawberry roan. From London, Melissa North. My name's Melissa North. I live in West London. I grew up in the country and I went to boarding school. When you got to the boarding school, it's the end of Nanny and the Pony. The English tradition is that boarding school, they're shipped off at 11 or 12, then they probably never really come home again. The headmistress of the school, who was a rather snobbish Scottish spinster, didn't really think that girls should have an education. Girls should be educated to dance and to write a thank you letter to a Duke and to marry well. Every morning you went down the drive to the stable, and that's where the classrooms were. And when you returned to the house, you were not allowed to take any of your books. If you were found taking one of your books, then you would be punished. The moment you got to school, you had to have a pash. Now, a pash would be a girl in the top form, good-looking, the most aristocratic. You identified as being her follower. And you would join up with the other girls who had the crush on the same girl, and you would take it in turns to hold her coat. You could carry her prayer book to church, you know, all sorts of little rituals.
6: Ooh, and I've been touched, and I've been touched. And it's too much, and it's too much.
2: If your Pash was coming round to put the lights out in the dormitories, you'd say, I'm homesick. She'd come and smooth your pillow, and that would be thrilling. There was a need for some kind of object of desire, somebody to love.
12: You need only say the word, kiss you
4: like a
12: The
1: hidden world of girls. When we put out our call for stories, hundreds of emails came in from around the globe telling us about women we'd better talk to or else. Actress Frances McDormand peered into our inbox and picked
12: some of her favorites. Dear Kitchen Sisters, I was trying to relax while my dentist had her hands in my mouth, and so I listened to her story about another patient, a woman who is 98, who grew up in New York as one of 13 children began working at 14, emancipated at 18, and walked across the country as a young woman with a friend. If I knew how to do what you do, I'd be running over there. Let me know, Karen Heisler. (laughs) Hello, I just wrote a book that profiles knitters from around the world, stories from the front lines of knitting's new wave. One woman, Beryl Sang, after her battle with breast cancer resulted in a double mastectomy, she started Titbits, a company that makes prosthetic knitted breasts. Best wishes, Sabrina Schwantner.
1: Back in a moment. Listening to the hidden world of girls. I'm your host, Tina Fey.
12: Where were we? Dear kitchen sisters, I would like to let you know about Raja Kuzai, formerly of Baghdad, Iraq. She was a national hero for her brave efforts to deliver over 30 babies via C-section during the Gulf War, when the hospital she ran was without water and electricity. She was chosen to serve in the original Iraqi Governing Council, defending women's rights under threat of death. These are only a few of her accomplishments. Best regards, Pat Smothers.
1: Morning Edition host Renee Montaigne takes us to Afghanistan, inside the walls of a school where, despite the threats of the Taliban, young girls unveil and work towards their future.
11: Follow me now down a street in Kandahar, through a tall iron gate, past a guard with a gun, and into a courtyard. Here, little girls let their bright veils slip and young women throw off their burkas. They're laughing and chatting now that they're within the walls of a place that promises to set them free.
2: I like my school. I like my school.
11: 11 year old Bill Key slipped away from her English class. She wanted to tell us why, for her, learning is more precious than any possession.
8: It's very great that everybody has to be educated because education is like a gold. When you get it, it will be always in your mind. Never, no one can steal it from your mind, education. We
11: can do everything by education. It's will shine your life. Afghan-Canadian Community Centre offers courses in English and computer technology and business. Here's Bilki's friend, Nurzia, who's 14. I'm learning English because uh, it's an
8: international language and uh, English is uh, very important for our life
0: if if we become a doctor uh, because doctor needs uh, to write up prescriptions for the patient by English. Do you want to be a doctor
11: then?
8: Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, miss. Yeah, we need four female doctors because uh, Afghans, uh, they're women, uh, they hide their face, or then they don't want uh, a male doctor exactly. They want to be uh, treated by me- female doctors. Therefore, we need four female doctors.
11: Yes, Kandahar is the heartland of the Taliban. But as you can hear, these girls have plans to be out in the world. My name is Tahira S. Saidi. Shahira Saidi, we are sisters and also we are classmates. We found Tahira, who's 20, and Shahira, who's 19, sitting at computers along with a dozen other girls. Tahira's dark eyes shine beneath her gauzy pink veil. Her sister Shahira is the conservative one, all in black. And when they speak of making up for the years under the Taliban when they weren't allowed to go to school, their words tumble out.
0: There was Taliban, so we were not going to school. We were just at home. My father is a doctor. He was teaching us. My mother never have gone to school because her father, her uncles, no one liked school, but my mother liked school. My mother, she said, my daughter will be educated. Mm -hmm.
11: One irony of Kandahar being a war zone, there may just be more opportunities for girls who want to grow up to be working women. There's the UN, NATO, and USAID, also offering desk jobs for women who can use computers and speak English, construction companies, and the cell phone giant Roshan. But it's dangerous. Somehow every girl and her family must come to terms with the possibility that harm could come to her. There's a war going on. Has it ever stopped you from coming to school? Is it dangerous that so your parent, no. your mother doesn't want you to? No. And your parents have never been too scared for you? Uh, no. Sometimes there are warnings for girls not to go to school, yeah. but you don't believe
8: it. No, I don't believe it. It's think just... Because it's a lie.
11: Nerzia's family chooses to view threats as intimidation, pure and simple by the Taliban or warlords or drug dealers, anyone who might benefit from fear and disorder. The family of Tahira and Shahira Saidi do allow themselves to be scared, but not scared away. Some
0: months ago, in near to our house, one girl was killed by someone. She was working. She was our classmates. My mother always says, when you are coming, I'm just waiting. I'm looking at the door. If they come or someone come and says that they are killed. We want to be brave and we want to be brave and we are coming to school.
11: At the Afghan Canadian Community Center, a pushy horn signals the end of the school day. The young girls tighten their headscarves. The older ones pull on their burkas. They hold their books to their chests like a shield and once again disappear onto the streets of Kandahar.
1: Some girls have grit. They break the rules. They forget the lessons they learned about what they shouldn't do, who they shouldn't marry, where they shouldn't go. Writer Chris Abani brings us to London and Nigeria into the life of his mother, into the hidden world of Daphne May Hunt.
4: My mother was born Daphne May Hunt. She was born on a small island in the Maidenhead River, just about 20 miles out of London. When she was 11, she took the school exams. She got the highest score in her entire school, but she was a girl and her mother was very uncomfortable with her going to school, so she ended up going to secretarial school. My name is Chris Abani. I'm a novelist, a poet. I was born in uh, Afikbo in southeastern Nigeria. My father, who was the first graduate from this small town, got a scholarship to go to the University of Cork in Ireland. He was the first black man in town. He went from there to Oxford and met my mother she was working as the Secretary of the Geography Department. They became inseparable. So I can imagine him being completely entranced by this small white woman who had such a big, big spirit. They got married in 57 in Nigeria, and she lived there for 30 years of her life. And so here's my mother. They were living in a very rural part of Eastern Nigeria. He was a principal of a mission school. One of the conditions of Getting married to my father and was my mother convert to Catholicism. She was Church of England, but he was very Catholic. She really took her Catholicism very seriously. Now,
2: here is Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Peace be to you. The
7: subject about to be discussed is birth control.
4: The words are not very proper. At the time, there was this big push for birth control within the local governments. On average, you know, women in rural Nigeria were having eight, nine children. And the Catholic Church could not support condoms, but the church wanted to be seen as a leader. So the Billings Ovulation Method was what they decided to teach rural women. Billings Ovulation Method, you closely follow your monthly cycles, so you know when you're most fertile and when you're not, and when not to have sex. My mother became certified as a Billings Ovulation teacher, and her job was to go and teach this to women. It's a very complicated thing to teach. Part of the problem was that her ego wasn't good enough to discuss people's uterus. She needed an interpreter, and my mother decided to ask me to interpret for her. I was eight years old. So we would set off, the two of us, and I would have a backpack. She had all these pictures and charts, because if not everyone was literate, and then we would go door to door. Everything starts with a greeting. Good afternoon, mothers. You greeted a woman who had children in the plural. uno, meaning all of you. It will be followed by an apology for me because I was about to discuss something sacred, taboo. I'm greeting you and saying that what I'm about to tell you could be offensive because I'm about to break taboo. But this is what my mother wants me to tell you. What my mother's bringing to you, she says, is a thing of glory, ibube, Ihoma, a thing of goodness. Ihugo, a thing of independence. And I hope you can listen. If you don't want to hear this, just say, and I will tell her, and we will leave. My mother said I should ask you if you are on your holy period. Then she would want to know the flow. I didn't even know if women had language for this, so I'd have to approximate all of these with natural phenomenon that I understood. For a heavy flow, onaswaso, is it like a waterfall? For a medium flow, I would have to say, onosukusumiri, is it flowing like a river? Obokubo, is it a brook? These women would never discuss this with their husbands. <laughs> and here's this eight-year-old boy who they happen to ask questions in Ebo for me to ask in English. but it, it worked. She didn't think twice about it because this is what women needed. And if the Catholic Church was going to ban condoms, she was determined that they would find this birth control information somehow.) <laughs> She and I used to sit on the porch drinking tea, eating cucumber sandwiches and listening to Glenn Miller. And knitting. She chose to teach me to knit, to sew, to iron, to cook. She didn't think that anything she did was strange or important or groundbreaking or risky. She just, you just do it. Mother would always say, you know, every good man needs a little bit of woman in them.
1: From San Francisco, the secret and not-so-secret life of Teresa Sparks.
3: My name is Teresa Sparks. I live in San Francisco. I grew up in the Midwest outside of Kansas City. It was kind of the beaver cleaver childhood, you know, and I was kind of the beaver. I was always a good student. Your typical normal Midwestern kid. My first wife was the love of my life. Six days apart in age, and we were born in the same hospital. And we actually lived next door to one another. We got married and had
6: three kids. My name is Adam Sparks. I am the son of Teresa Sparks. I live in Overland Park, Kansas. It's always been a pretty traditional family, except for the obvious stuff, obviously. My dad was a guy's guy. You know, he was a, a dad's dad. He wore snakeskin boots. Had a Harley, had a muscle truck that had like 500 horsepower. We would do things like you know rewire the house to the main box. We always went and got a tool of the week Saturday morning, you know, get up and go get the tool of the week.
3: People ask me, when did I decide or when did I discover, or when did I know? You always know there's something just kind of a half a click off, but you're not sure what it is. I'd been dressing in female clothes secretly since I was a young boy. Did I think I was a girl? No, not really. I would go out and I'd go to a Kmart or something and buy women's clothes and then go to a bathroom at a service station and I'd change my clothes. It always had to be dark and just drive around and have no contact with anyone. When I stopped at the stoplight, I would stop back far enough so they couldn't look in my car and then go back to the service station and throw the clothes away. You know, I wasn't trying to fool anybody. In
6: fact, I was petrified that somebody would see me. There weren't really any signs. My dad engineered and built refineries all over the world, waste management, recycling. When I was in high school, my dad was the president and CEO of a company that recycled the waste off the bottom of the San Diego Bay.
3: I've coached soccer. I coach baseball. I was in the Navy, I had a beard and I smoked cigars, everything I could to try to push back this thing, keep it at bay. I think a lot of people in this situation, they believe if I can just get married and have a great relationship, it'll go away. I can beat this thing. I had to bring this out into the open. And I remember both my wives saying, do you want to be a woman? And I was telling the same answer, I have no idea. You know, and in both cases, that resulted in destroying the marriages.
6: He kept it pretty well hidden. Right up until my brother was graduating boot camp, my dad came to that, and his hair was a little bit long and wavy, and he kind of looked like Michael Douglas at a Romancing the Stone or something. So we drive out to the cemetery to go see his brother and dad's grave. And that's where my dad told us. He was basically a woman in a man's body. You know, I started crying, my sister started crying. My brother just said get in the car and spit on the ground and we just kind of left my dad sitting there in the cemetery.
3: I went to Thailand and had surgery. Gender reassignment surgery. Once you're completed you can legally change your gender on legal documents. Then I came back and I had no relationship with anybody from my former life whatsoever. All my people I'd worked with had stopped talking to me. You know, my kids, the relationship was very strained.
6: I mean, I didn't speak to my dad after that day for a decade. Yeah, I mean, it was like straight from the muscle truck and the Harley and the BMW to, I'm selling everything and I'm gonna go have surgery on my genitals. I kind of dealt with it like my father had just passed away. I don't know how many years my dad didn't have a job. I would imagine it would be pretty tough for a trans person at 52 years old to get a job. I answered a
3: job at one of the best-known female sex toy companies in the country, Good Vibrations. I went to work in their shipping department. I went from packer shipper to CEO of the company and ran the company for several years.
4: My name is
2: Margaret Cho, and I am a stand-up comedian.
13: I met Teresa through working on
2: the board for Good Vibrations. She is this incredible business mind. When I think of her, I think about almost a literary character like
13: Orlando, somebody who lives for a period of time as a man and then lives as a woman.
4: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is the regular meeting of the San Francisco Police Commission.
3: I'd gotten involved in some political activities based on um, violence against transgender people, and at that point I got totally thrust into San Francisco politics.
14: I am Senator Mark Leno, representing the 3rd California State Senate District of San Francisco, Marin, and Sonoma Counties. I first met Teresa Sparks when I was serving on the San Francisco County Board of Supervisors. She was appointed by Willie Brown to serve on the Human Rights Commission and was subsequently appointed to become a police commissioner.
5: Last night, the city's police commission voted to make Sparks its leader, making her possibly the first transgender person to have- My name is Gary Delanus, president of the San Francisco Police Officers Association. We had some difficult times at the beginning. Um, we butted heads a lot in the first year. She wouldn't take any of my crap, and I didn't take any of hers.
14: When I was considering who my office would choose as our 13th Assembly District's Woman of the Year, it seemed fitting that I would choose Teresa. And so we brought Teresa to Sacramento. A Few nights later, Jay Leno decided to make note of this in his monologue on his Late Show. The joke line was something like, leave it to California to choose a man as Woman of the Year. Teresa rose above it. She's seen it all.
7: Welcome back, everyone, to the uh, 38th annual Pride Parade, United by Pride, Bound for
5: Equality. My name is Lee Melotello. I'm a lieutenant with the San Francisco Police Department. I can remember the first time Teresa rode in that parade as a police commissioner with the LGBT cops. We have now about 250 lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender police officers in our police department. Here comes another Grand Marshal.
7: Yay! This is uh, Teresa Sparks, a Lifetime Achievement Grand Marshal. The first elected openly transgender president of the San Francisco Police Commission. That was in 2007. And she's riding with her two daughters and Margaret Chow
3: Normally when people look at me, their first response isn't transgender until I talk. You know, I've taken voice lessons. I was the voice therapist. I had surgery on my vocal cords, which could have left me without a voice. Finally, at some point,
6: you just kind of give up. You know, it is what it is. He was over at my sister's for Thanksgiving, so I just went over there, and that was uh, the first time. My dad still talked the same. Still wearing jeans, they just were tight. You know, still had shoes on, they just happened to have three inch heels. Same hands, just very no polish. Hair was red. It was almost like my dad was walking around, you know, in the wrong suit for 50 something years. And then finally he was wearing the right suit.
1: The Secret Life of Teresa Sparks, produced in collaboration with Nathaniel Johnson. Back in a moment with stories from Yemen, the Fillmore, and Kingston, Jamaica. NPR's Hidden World of Girls continues. I'm your host, Tina Fey. You never know where stories lurk. The woman cutting your hair, the kid cutting your lawn. Producer Shireen Marisol Miraji found this story on Kickstarter. Amira in America, the Hidden World of a Yemeni Girl.
8: Hi, my name is Amira Sharif. I was born in Saudi Arabia and grew up in Yemen.
13: I came across a Mira Al-Sharif's video featured on a website called Kickstarter, where pretty much anyone can make a plea to get their quirky personal projects funded.
8: I'm looking for your support during my year in America. My project will be documenting the lives of American women my age and to compare and contrast them with the lives of the Yemeni young women.
13: Amira al-Sharif was turning her camera lens on us, America, a Middle Eastern journalist flipping the script. It seems like it's always the other way around. Western, Western journalists documenting Arab women.
8: I would love to see that this opportunity will change my life forever. Bye-bye.
13: Stephanie Sinclair is an American photojournalist who's been documenting child marriage issues for the last eight years. Amira was her interpreter in Yemen. She
11: has like that thing that you can't give people. Like you can't ever teach people how to get along with people, how to make them trust you. And she has that innately.
13: Stephanie was inspired by Amira's guts and raw talent, so she found a way to bring her to the International Center of Photography in New York City. Over to A
7: Indiana, we're in the
13: East Village, making our way to Tompkins Square Park so Amira can take pictures for one of her first assignments. Thank
8: you. I do appreciate. She's
13: wearing sneakers, a flowy long sleeve shirt over jeans and a pretty silk scarf over her hair. This is not her usual outdoor attire in Yemen, which is a figure-concealing black abaya and a face veil called a niqab that has just a narrow opening for the eyes.
8: People think the girl who wear niqab, she couldn't do whatever she wants. And if it is like this, why I am here if I can't do anything? And really, there is a lot of women in Yemen. Nobody know how much they are strong, how much they have fighting spirit.
13: Amira's only been in the U.S. for a few weeks at this point. But she is bold. The first time she took photos in New York was on the 9-11 anniversary, and she was wearing her hijab. Here at Tompkins Square Park, there's a free punk rock show going on. And Amira's found her subject in the crowd. He's a 38-year-old park regular named Matt Logan. The guy is the visual stereotype of hard living, complete with face tattoos. And we're not talking about the
9: artsy kind.
8: Who are the people who stay in Tompkins Park?
9: A lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life, kind of like a community of outcasts. You know. And now
8: the people in the park, they are your family.
9: Kinda.
13: I mean, I still have a family. You know, my, I speak. To we my spent family. most of I'm that not, first day you know. with Matt. Amira asked him about living away from home, getting arrested. What
8: did you feel when you smoke marijuana? What
9: do I feel when I smoke marijuana? I feel very relaxed and in tune and in touch with nature and everything surrounding me and the universe. I feel like I'm in sync. And maybe it's because
13: his life is nothing like hers. She may have a fighting spirit, but that fight can never be a full-on rebellion like Matt's. It comes down to family honor. She was very careful not to say anything that might be construed as criticism of her homeland or her
8: culture. Okay, I'll show you this picture.
13: It's four months after that first encounter. Amira is showing me some of her work at the International Center of Photography. She's struggling with her American women photo project. Her subjects disappear, they'll stop calling, they'll stop texting her back.
8: I think it's the difference. Yemen, it's more like families and groups. You cannot disappear. I'm going to call your aunt and mother and father and the brother, and I'm going to contact your sisters.
13: Amira's had the most luck with her subject, Anna. She's a 24-year-old Brooklynite whose hobbies include fire dancing. And she's allowed Amira full access to her world.
8: Really, she invited me to go with her for the Thanksgiving in Massachusetts. So what was that like, Thanksgiving in America? It's like every day in Yemen. <laughs> Yeah. Every day in Yemen, it's Thanksgiving. She showed me her
13: favorite photo from that trip. It's a shot of Anna, her nieces and her grandparents, all hanging out on a double bed talking. Amira liked it so much, she emailed it to her family and friends in Yemen. Oh,
8: They were like, ah, American people live like this. What were they surprised about? We know that American women, they are more individual. American women lived alone. So it was like something nice because it's more like Yemen.
13: Amira is drawn to the subjects that remind her of home. And that's really where she wants to make it as a photojournalist, a Yemeni documenting Yemen.
8: I realize that people here, they don't even know where is Yemen. I really would love uh, American people to know Yemen, to understand more about women issues in Yemen.
13: Amira is hoping her country makes the transition from dictatorship to democracy, and that she's there to capture it.
8: This is Yemen history. The people want to live free. I need I really need to be there.
9: Left the city, my mama, she said, don't come back home. These kids around killing each other, they lost their minds. They, they quit in school, making babies, and can barely reach them. Go off to the wall. Lord, have mercy
1: on Singer Janelle Monet backstage in her dressing room at the, the Fillmore. Door. San Francisco, 2009.
9: My name is Janelle Monet, born and raised in Kansas City, Kansas. My mother was a janitor, and my father was addicted to drugs pretty much all my adolescent years and in and out of prison. Sincerely Jane, that song was written as a reflection for all the people walking dead. They're not living. Drugs took over my community. I actually wanted to write that song to remind myself about where I need to go and and where I don't need to go. go I always wanted to create a very whimsical world to escape. I let my imagination run wild whenever I would watch Cinderella and, you know, Beauty and the Beast. I was hugely inspired by Fritz Lang's 1927 German Expressionist silent film, Metropolis. It dealt with the constant struggles between the haves and the have nots. And it reminded me so much of growing up in Kansas and people just walking dead and not really knowing what our purposes were. Catherine Hepburn was a huge inspiration. She was the first woman to walk on the red carpet uh, with pants. I'm just really into high-waist pants and cummerbunds and tuxedo shirts and pompadours. When I'm into the first song, my pompadour is falling down. Uh, I stage dive pretty often. I'm always thinking about, like, what if James Brown or Elvis or people that I really look up to came to my show? That's really always on my mind, getting a smile out of James Brown.
1: culture has its own standard of beauty, and everywhere around the world, women are altering themselves in an attempt to measure up. The Kitchen Sisters take us to the streets of Kingston, where some women have come up with a homegrown beauty enhancement technique, chicken pills, the hidden world of Jamaican girls.
0: Some girls, to be more attractive to the male, they get themselves into this use of chicken pills. Yeah. Carol Turpin, St. Catherine, Jamaica.
7: Chicken pills are the same pills that you give to the chicken to make them grow faster. Some people use it if you want to get broader hips or bigger bottom. My name is Jason Turpin. I'm a college student from Kingston. In our Jamaican culture, you know, we, we love a girl that has well, a shape.
0: Most males, they love to see women with big bottoms. The whole idea for a cocoa, uh, cola bottle yeah, shape. When,
7: when, when they're talking about a, a cocoa bottle shape, it's like more heavier down on the hips.
0: I don't want a manga woman. That's how the men would speak. You say mega, we say maga. They're figuring that if you look maga, you look poor and um, poor in the sense of you're
10: not being taken care of.
15: If you have no meat on your bones, the society can't see your wealth, your progress, your being. My name is Sonia Stanley Nile. I am a lecturer in cultural studies at the University of the West Indies. This African standard of beauty, and it's very much present in Jamaica, the body must be healthy, and that health is expressed in some amount of fat.
10: If you have a big bottom, that means that you're sitting on a lot of power. I'm Carolyn Cooper, Professor of Literary and Cultural Studies at the University of the West Indies, Mona, Jamaica. In order to achieve this look, some women are actually taking the hormone pills that are given to chickens to make them fat. The perception is that the benefit of having a nice figure outweighs the medical risk that they're taking.
15: We have these conversations in the culture about such body modification and conceptions of the ideal body. It manifests in the music, the dance halls, the dance moves. There's a particular song about the woman whose derriere is of such quality, flexibility, and panache that she can successfully, with vim and vigor, ride the motorbike back. And be a visual spectacle.
10: It is a beautiful sight. I'm a love to watch to see the young girl and pan the bike back. bike back. In our culture, you get competing norms of beauty. There's a kind of anorexic, Eurocentric model of beauty, also, a much more Afrocentric. Body type that is valorized. What I find amazing is the degree to which women will put themselves at risk to fit an image that they consider to be ideal.
0: My name is Raquel Jones. I'm 21 years old and I'm from Kingston, Jamaica. I was casted to play a lead role in a short film, Chicken Pill. It's about two teenage girls, one getting more attention from the boys in the class. The other character, Lisa, is having self esteem problems, so she turns to the chicken pill. Here's something to look forward to, Lisa. Diarrhea, rashes. Oh, I'm sure Ronnie will like rashes on those new breasts. And cancer, Lisa, cancer.
10: This preoccupation with transforming the body is something that transcends cultures. Whether it's under the surgeon's knife or you freelance with a chicken pill, it's a whole discourse of dissatisfaction about accepting the body as naturally beautiful. I'm Donna Hope Marquis,
0: lecturer in reggae studies at the University of the West Indies. Women are using other forms of artifice, a lot of hair extensions. Acrylic nails, coloured contact lenses, and skin bleaching as a form of enhancement.
15: You can
10: get bleaching products on the streets of Kingston downtown in the markets. The same place where you're buying them chicken peel. You see them being sold in little plastic bags with no labels, you have no idea what the ingredients are, you just know it's a bleaching cream. They have all these concoctions people mix up toothpaste
0: and bleach powder, rub it on you have to keep yourself out of the sun so they cover their skin the skin starts to have a sort of reddish appearance, which means that your epidermis is being burned. Ministry of Health have been seeing it as a medical challenge and have been trying to discourage high school children from engaging in the practice. this used to be only women who would bleach their skin, but now men are doing it.
9: bleach for two weeks now. I'm I'm Gabrielle,
12: and I'm at Princess Street. I bleach to look good. If you're white, a lot of people won't find any fault about it. But if you're black, it's a
10: big problem, right? All around the world. Colour is a very important marker of social status. In Jamaica, what you're looking at is a society that has emerged out of the trauma of slavery. Blackness was seen as something negative. Women have been socialized to be beautiful. That is part of your identity as a woman. So if you grow up as a black woman in a culture that says black is ugly, then it's going to be a constant fight to affirm your sense of value. The attitude is, well, if light skin is in, I can get it too, chemically.
12: If you want bleach on, bleach
4: and fit your bleach on, bleach on.
10: Captain Barkey has a song called
0: Bleach On. Basically, if it works for you, continue doing it. Dancehall music also ridicules the bleachers and lightens them to monkeys and people who are vampires and have to hide out of the sunlight.
4: In the day,
10: it is all right. But in the night, that's when the monkeys come out. Pump. let those monkeys
0: out. Africa has a song. She's a Rastafari artist, very popular, and she feels that bleaching is a negation of your African self.
10: My complexion is better than ever. Brown skin.
15: I think at the end of the day, these practices are not intended to diminish, but to assert themselves as women.
10: Beautiful young ladies, Miss Jamaica World 2009. Jamaican beauty contests have been fraught with social contestation. You have people throwing orange peel at winners that they consider inappropriate. 1955, they had this multiracial competition. The lighter-skinned women were named after flowers, Miss Lotus and Miss Blossom, and so on, and the darker women were named after hardwood, Miss Mahogany, Miss Ebony. Immediately you would know the flowers and the fruits would win much more readily than the hardwoods.
9: Are you ready? Are you ready?
10: Over time, the aesthetic has changed. Two years ago, Zara Redwood in the Miss Universe competition, a black woman with organic dreadlocks, She has, what we'd say in Jamaica, a broad nose, and she has full lips. That kind of image, 50 years ago, would never be parading on any stage as beautiful. So we have to see that we have come a long way in terms of the society's readiness to accept multiple models of beauty.
0: Maria. Placida. And placida means placid. Not far from being placid. I had a fighting spirit in me.
1: The Hidden World of Girls is produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, and NPR. I am 85 years old. Mixed by Jim McKee at Earwax Productions. The associate producers are Nathan Dalton and Laura Folger. And another thing that I always believed in. Produced in collaboration with Madalika Sika, Tracy Wall, and Maeve McGoran from NPR's Morning Edition, Christopher Turpin, Alison McAdam, and Melissa Gray at All Things Considered. No dancing. No speaking to your boy cousin. Special thanks to NPR's Executive Director of News Programming, Ellen McDonald. I hate to say this, but to tell the truth before God, the women have too much of a long tongue. And our team at NPR's Digital News. Project interns, Caroline Binns. Sam Robinson, Matt Beagle, Rachel Scott, Thalia Gigorenzer, Shanik von Bertraub, and Anne Wooten. Dorma, bambino, dorma. Deep thanks to Ellen Lewis and Frances McDormand.
0: Cover your knees. Cover your knees, girls. Cover
1: your knees. Major funding for The Hidden World of Girls was provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. And by listener contributions to the the Kitchen Sisters Productions. Help if you can. You're hungry, you come here and I'll feed you. Our executive producers are Susie Tompkins Buell and Mark Buell. Keep your honor and your love for your neighbors. You can go further into the hidden world at hiddenworldofgirls.org. And don't speak to boys. The Hidden World of Girls specials are distributed by NPR and PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm done. So, you, if you want to say something and hear yourself on the headphones, you can. Who's got the microphone?
15: I have the microphone. Who's got the microphone? Who has the microphone?
1: With the Kitchen Sisters, I'm Tina Faye.